sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Year NBA veteran, NBA All Star, twenty year professional basketball player, Washington State basketball player, author of two amazing books: First Standing Above the Crowd and Celebrating Your Gift of Life. A mental health advocate. We are so thrilled to be joined by James Donaldson. James, thanks for joining us today. How you doing? Hey, thank you very much. I'm just uh, just blessed. It's been a beautiful day so far up here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, this is what we wait nine months a year for, for the beautiful weather to come in. <laughs> come on down to Southern California, James. It's every single day. <laughs> I know. I've been down there before. I know. <laughs> so your journey is unbelievable. And actually, uh, I followed your path as a kid through the NBA. But even more so, I saw the recent article about both the challenges and also the achievements that you achieved in your own life. I want to start with the basketball journey because uh, in your book here, Standing Above the Crowd, you speak yes. about being a tall person in the world that people assume that you play basketball, but you actually didn't even hit the basketball court until you were, I believe, a senior in high school. So <laughs> that's, that's right. people were urging you to play basketball, but you really didn't take the bait. So what made you realize, you know what, I'm going to use maybe my God-given physical ability to play some ball? Well, it took a great mentor, uh, my, my old high school basketball coach, uh, Chuck Calhoun back at uh, Sacramento, California at Luther Burbank High School, who really saw in me the potential way, way before I saw it. I think he saw the potential in me the first day I stepped on the high school campus as a freshman. Uh, and, you know, the football coach was trying to get me to come out and play football. And uh, and I turned down the football coach. And, and then my junior year, Coach Calhoun, he said, well, if I come at him too hard, he'll probably just uh, say no, and we'll never, never realize what potential there might be there. Uh, so he came at me real soft and, and with kid gloves, and he said, James, uh, I know you don't want to play, but we would love for you to at least give it a try and see what it's going to be. Uh, and so my junior year, he talked me into coming out to practice every day. I didn't have to play any games. And this was probably my big hindrance was I was very, very introverted, uh, very self-conscious about my height, my size and everything else. Being a kid, you know, you're always being picked on or being pointed out or, you know, kids can be cruel sometimes. And so I was always very reluctant to put myself in these awkward social situations. And heaven forbid, I mean, running up and down a basketball court in teeny tiny shorts and a tank top was not going to be something that was going to be very appealing to me. So Coach Calhoun had me come out and at least practice with the team every day uh, as a junior in high school. And this was my first really experience with getting a basketball in my hands and starting to learn the basic, basic fundamentals. We did the old George Mike and drills oh, yeah. and throwing the ball off the, off the wall, catching up my quickness, reflexes, all these kind of things had to develop. And, uh, I played during the summer league just a little bit uh, between my junior and senior year. And then my senior year is when I, when I played my first official basketball game. Mm -hmm. And so 
you played, it's your senior year, and then not many people basically play your senior year of high school and go to a Division One athletics. I mean, you speak in your book that, you know, the amount of kids that want to take it to that level, and you really speak about the idea of success. You say there's a difference between being successful and staying successful. Maybe you can describe that difference of what it meant to take to the next level to play for George Raveling at uh, Washington State. Well, it's like it's like hitting the lottery. You know, we hear all these stories about these lottery winners. Uh, they win a big jackpot. They're successful in in our material way that we rank things and people in, in society. Uh, and then they quickly go through all that money in, in a matter of a couple of few years and they're right back where they started. So there's a difference between being successful and staying successful mm-hmm. is what I'm pointing out. Uh, it requires a lot of hard work, a lot of discipline, a lot of perseverance, and you just have to keep on going, going, going. You can't say no. You can't stop. You can't take days off because you don't feel like it. Uh, it's something you have to really dedicate yourself to. And that's what I did. Uh, you know, I eventually fell in love with the game of basketball. Uh, I wanted to see how far I could go with it. I, I had no idea that I would be a professional uh, basketball player. My first two years at Washington State University, I essentially set the bench and just worked on practice every day, worked in the weight room, uh, became a better athlete, bigger, faster, stronger. And my junior year is when I really started blossoming into a bona fide uh, collegiate uh, basketball player at Washington State University and started getting some recognition, uh, you know, all Pac-8 honors at the time. And we had Pac-8. a pretty good we go, Are we going back to Pac-8 with the UCA, USC, UCLA thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully not. But, uh, yeah, I think we need to keep it at the Pac-12 if we can. Got it. But, uh but, you know, we were in a division, in a conference. UCLA was always going to win the conference every year. They were coming out of the John Wooden years, and they were still really top-ranked for many years after that. So we were never going to win the conference and go to the NCAA tournament uh, back then. But we were we were competitive. We had very good teams. We won, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19 games a year. Uh, and that's where I made my mark and started getting some recognition. Uh, as a basketball player that might be able to do the NBA thing. And so you talk about the three D's, your uh, way of being and staying successful. I believe it's desire, dedication, and discipline. And that comes from different moments of your life. Actually, yesterday I was talking to a child who was going to celebrate his bar mitzvah about Abraham's faith in the Bible. And I pulled out your book and I said, here's what it says in the Bible, but this is what James Donaldson said. And I think Abraham followed that same path. Desire, dedication, and discipline. I want to start with the discipline because you talk about your father and him being in the U.S. Air Force and him really never missing a day of work. Talk about your father's influence on the idea of discipline in your own life. My my dad, uh, you know, God bless his soul, just passed away last year at 94 years of age. Uh, But for all those years, he was so disciplined. His military training, his push-ups, his sit-ups every day in his bedroom, to start his morning off. Uh, you know, he ate well. He took care of himself. He never made excuses. He went to work every single day and took care of the fatherly duties that a father has in the family, uh, keeping a roof over our head, food on the table, and making sure that we were all in a safe, sh- secure environment with my mom and my siblings. So that's where I really learned about the art of discipline. 
And, you know, it, it comes in handy in so many different aspects of life. Of course, being an athlete, uh, being anything that you're going to be successful at, you have to be disciplined. Uh, yeah. I, got into mar- I got into martial arts for about 12 or 13 years uh, during my basketball career. And that requires a tremendous amount of discipline as well. Uh, keeping keeping with your forms and your movements and everything else. Uh, and so discipline has really been a huge part of my success. And how did that work in terms of the MBA and coaching? You've worked with many different coaches, George Raveling and two that I personally love that never met yet, Pat Riley mm-hmm. and Lenny Wilkins. How do different yeah. disciplines relate to different styles of players where some people are going to relate to this and some people are going to relate to that? You know, uh, George Raveling was the old school disciplinarian type, uh, cut out of the Bobby Knight mold and those mm-hmm. kind of guys. Yeah. Uh, and, and that suited me well. It didn't suit all the players well, but it suited me really well, especially back in the 70s and 80s. Um, I don't you can't get away with that nowadays. But uh, back then, that's how we we trained. That's how we were coached. Uh, I had other disciplinary coaches, uh, Pat Riley, as you mentioned, uh, Dick Mata. Uh, with uh, with the Dallas Mavericks, Jerry Sloan. Whoa, you talk about disciplinarian. Uh, wow. These were old school coaches that only knew one way, and they would challenge your manhood. They would challenge you every single day to be the best that you can be. And they were doing it because they wanted to. They wanted you to be the best you can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, like my high school coach, they saw the potential in you that you don't even realize. Yes. You don't realize until you tap in, into it. So you talk about the different mentors that you had. And of course, all of our kids look up to the Michael Jordans, LeBron James, James Donaldson's. But one person you said is a mentor was build a crosswalk, man. And you don't yeah. often think about the person that you walk in through every single day is going to be a mentor. But you always search for his wisdom when you yeah. went to school. Who was this guy build a crosswalk, man? Well, he was an old retiree uh, who was just kind of filling this time being a crosswalk guard. This was when I was back in elementary school. Uh, And, you know, he always seemed to have a moment to say something positive to me, whether it was, you know, tie my shoelaces or, you know, pull my pants up or, you know, don't drag my books on the ground, carry them the way I'm supposed to carry them. I mean, these were just subtle reminders. You know, he wasn't getting on me. He wasn't riding me hard. I was just a kid, uh, elementary school kid. But I always looked at those little pearls of wisdom as something that was very valuable and, uh, and helped me realize that there are people out there in this world that really care about you Uh, for for no other reason than they just care. They just, that's just their nature. They don't want anything from me. I had nothing to give Bill the crosswalk guard as a, as a, as a third grader or fourth grader. I had nothing to give him, but he cared about me. And I've, I've come across so many of these wonderful type of mentors through my life all my basketball coaches, uh, business associates, uh, community leaders, people who just really care about me, the person, and don't want anything from me is mm-hmm. is really what makes life so rich and rewarding. And it's got to be hard as a professional athlete because I know you write that uh, some of the tips when you're talking about success, be careful who you surround yourself by because at your success, of course, they want to be your best friend, but at your lowest point, it's like, who are you? Yes, yes. Well, this comes back to getting know, getting to know yourself first and foremost. Yep. Uh, if you don't know you and, and what you value, uh, what are your morals and your values, 
uh, you are prone to be taken advantage of by a lot of people out there, especially when you get into the trappings of being a professional athlete. Uh, you know, girls come out of the woodwork. Uh, relatives come out of the I had relatives in every single town we went to. All of a sudden, <laughs> they, they just come out of the woodwork. They say, oh, I'm your second cousin. You're, you know, your third, fourth cousin removed. And, you know, you you kind of let them into your little world for a moment just to see right. who they are. Uh-huh. But then you have to be on your safeguard and realize that a lot of times uh, at some point they're going to be putting their hand out and asking you to help them with something or another uh, nine times out of 10 anyway. So you just have to be on guard. Uh, there's a great saying I, I've, I've grown up knowing, uh, especially when I started writing my books, notice what you notice. And notice, is what it, you notice. notice what you notice. And a lot of times we kind of, disregard what we notice is right in front of us. You know, these, these flaming red flags that go up and we don't really take notice of that, but you have to notice what you notice. Funny that you say that because you have a quote by Churchill that says, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity, an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. And when you say notice what you notice, you talk about the red flags, but I also think in the faith world, it can work the opposite, which you also write about saying, Often we don't notice what we notice, which are the blessings in front of our lives. Small little things. When you talk about your career in Europe and a lot of the players just sort of sit in their room and don't go to the game, you say, no, I'm out on the beach. I'm learning the language. I'm talking to the people. So how do you take notice what you notice and bring the blessings into your life as well? Well, I I think if any of us have any faith and I'm, uh, my life is guided by faith. You know, I've been a Christian ever since I was a little boy. My father was a very strong Christian man very involved with the church. Uh, you know, he did everything but pastor the church. He was the deacon. He was the usher. He was the treasurer. He was all kind of officials. Um, and he made sure that we went, to, we went to church every single Sunday. And that's how I grew up. And uh, I still go to church every single Sunday. It's part of that discipline we talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if we realize how truly blessed we are, uh, we don't have much cause to complain or cry about much. Uh, all we have to do is look at countries around the world and see yeah. even even in our crazy chaotic country right now, we are still so, so much more blessed than they are, the other people in the other countries that don't nearly have the wonderful blessings, the wonderful advantages, the privileges that we have in this country. And I wish people could take advantage of that and start to realize uh, that would probably calm down some of the the divisiveness that's going on in this country and realize that we are all in this together and we could be a great role model for the rest of the world as well. So I want to have a little fun with your basketball career because I never had a chance to step on an NBA court and one of your nicknames was Dukes. You talk about safeguarding your sort of boundary and you did those with uh, these guys right here. Here's a little uh, recap of your uh, tussle with I believe Mark West. Oh yeah. (laughs) 32 Weston Donaldson going at it. Here we go. Boy, they really are going at it. And they're both going to be ejected here, and they're still trading punches. Gilliam and Brad Davis. So, James Donaldson, maybe just take us through when, you know, even on the court, you got to protect yourself sometimes. You do. And, and my job being a big, strong guy on the team, I had to protect the other guys, too. Oh, <laughs> so. nice. True, true. Where you were know. the guards? They're in the backcourt waiting for you. <laughs> That's exactly. They didn't come jumping in the melee. They stayed outside. Uh, but the big guys, 
that's the role that we played. We are the enforcers on the team. And, you know, when, when the guard gets beat on the perimeter and his man's driving to the basket, we have to go pick that, pick that person up and make sure they don't just dunk the ball in the basket. Uh, so we got a lot of roles to play. But also, you know, uh, sports is a lot of physical proudness, uh, intimidation. I was one of the biggest, strongest guys in the NBA at the time. Uh, and I could not. I mean, I learned that early on in my career where I, I got leveled by Wes Unsell and Elvin Hayes during a game during my rookie year. And they just, they, they just glow, stared at me while I was flat on my back, uh, writhing in pain. And they weren't even lending a hand to get me up off the ground. Mm-hmm. You know? And I knew then, I said, well, if I tuck my tail and run, I'll never be able to get back on this court again. So I had to pick myself up and dust myself off and keep on going. And I went through a lot of those kind of battles. Uh, the bad boys in Detroit, uh, McFilthy and oh, yeah. McNasty, <laughs> Rick, Rick Mahorn, Bill Lambeer, uh, you know, so many guys, uh, you know, Artis Gilmore, big, strong guys, Mark West, like we saw here. Uh, luckily, those punches didn't land solidly. Otherwise, one of us really, really would have gotten hurt. But you got <laughs> you got to make your statements. You got to take your stand. And uh, and be able to show people that you're there to mean business and you, you can't back down. You just cannot do that. So that's on the court. But now let's talk about more of the serious aspects and more sacred moments of life. And that's the challenges that you went through. You know, we turn off the TV on TNT and sort of check the box score. But we don't really know what's going on behind that camera, behind those lives. And you hit some difficult times in your life and those challenges. The first, of course, is your injury in uh, Houston when you actually then you decided to open up a physical therapy clinic and you opened many clinics, but even though, like you said in the book, you didn't have any substance abuse or anything like that, mm-hmm. God did dealt you a difficult time. And some of those challenges, as you just said, you could have sort of just drifted away, but you didn't sure. and you really fought through. So maybe just yeah. take us through um, when you realize like, Oh my gosh, these were not the challenges that I signed up for. Yeah. Well, I think it shows you just how little control we actually have. I mean, we all think we're in such great control of our lives and such great control of our destiny. But, you know, each and every moment is unknown to us. Uh, Only God knows what that moment's going to be like, what tomorrow's going to yield. We don't know. And so here I was, uh, you know, just really enjoying the fruits of my labor and retirement uh, after 20 years professional basketball. Uh, I'm 57 years old. Uh, I was in the picture of health. I was still in the weight room five, six days a week, still running and jogging three or four days a week. And just really on top of things, I had my thriving physical therapy business for all those years, still going strong. And then out of nowhere, uh, you know, I was out trying to play around the golf one morning with some friends of mine, and I just was feeling horrible. My, My back was killing me. I was sweating profusely. Uh, I, I felt nauseous. And so I just told the guys, hey, I, I don't feel good. I'm going to go and see my doctor and see what's going on. And luckily, that's the move I made instead of staying out there on the golf course, because if I would have fell out on the golf course, that would have been it. There was no saving me at that point. I, I made it to my doctor's office and I fell out in his office right there in the reception area. And they did a quick scan on my heart and on my vital organs, determined there was a, a heart issue I was having. 
threw me in the ambulance and right into surgery for a 12-hour emergency open-heart surgery for an aortic dissection. This is where your, your aorta in your blood vessels, you know, we hear about aneurysms. It's very mm-hmm. similar. Swelling and swelling and swelling to the point it's going to burst eventually. The diameter of my aorta was five times larger than it should have wow. been and right on the verge of bursting. And if it bursts, you've got about 10 heartbeats left and that's it. You know, nobody could save you. Mm-hmm. So they, they went in there with emergency heart surgery and repaired that. And that began my downward spiral into the mental illness, mental challenges, the depression and anxiety. Uh, One, being flat on my back for a full year trying to recover. Uh, I wasn't able to really focus on my business anymore the way I had done for 28 years prior. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had one surgery after another. This was 2015. Right. Another major surgery, 2016, another one in 2018, another one in 2020. Um, and so during that time, this is where life just throws you some, some curveballs you just can't yep. hit. Yep. Uh, my, my wife uh, walked out on our marriage. She, she took her son with her, uh, my, my stepson. She took him with her. And they just disappeared one day when I was out of town for a weekend. And I came back to a big empty house. Um, my mother had passed away during the same year, 2016. Um, my business started having some financial challenges and difficulties. And here I am still not full speed, not able to put in a day's work at the office, uh, just having to just rest and take it easy as best I could. And so those things hit me, you know, one after another, like, like a, a big shoe dropping on top of you. Uh, and I, eventually I ended up losing my business. I, I spent all of my NBA life savings trying to save my business, uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars I had saved up for retirement. Mm-hmm. And I spent, I spent it down to the last penny, uh, trying to save the business. I felt, I felt an obligation to our 25 employees we had to keep it going as long as we possibly could. And I filed for bankruptcy eventually. Uh, I, my home that I lived into in for 40 years went into foreclosure. I ended up losing that. Uh, I, I tell everybody I lost everything but my life. And mm. even that was just kind of barely hanging on by my fingertips, not to mm-hmm. take my life because mm-hmm. that's, that's how far to the edge of, of suicide and despair that I was right on the verge of taking my own life. I lost everything else. And so this was a long, long process through 2018 of finally trying to get back on my feet, reaching out for help with uh, medical professionals, uh, a couple of my old coaches who I co-dedicate my Celebrating Your Gift of Life book to, uh, Lenny Wilkins. Right here. Yep. Yeah, Lenny, Lenny Wilkins and George Raveling. They were there like a pair of crutches, one on either side of me, just just holding me up and telling me that, hey, we're we're not going to give up on you. And we don't want you to give up on you. Uh, they, they had no room. Yeah. And I'm you telling- actually, after that, you actually start with one of my favorite signs. Even though I walk Psalms, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no harm for you are with me. And it's not only God, but it's actually your rod and your staff that comfort you. Lenny Wilkins, your friends, your family, mm-hmm. your community. And now 
your ability to share your story is allowing us to not just be with you, but in fact, to be aware of what exists. And I want to go to a clip that you shared. And when you were coming out of that heart surgery, you had a moment of godliness that we hear about. And this is what you said. After that, I had one of those, one of those experiences they talk about where you are kind of going towards the light, you know. Uh, people who are on the verge of dying talk about this light that they see that they're going towards. And I was sitting in my hospital bed, uh, a vision of me sitting there, and uh, I had a vision of God up above me, looking over me, over my shoulder. And I'm leafing through this big picture book big, huge pictures of all the things I'd done in my life up to this point. My friends, my growing up years, my college years, uh, activities all around town. And I was flipping through this thing, and I'm about, you know, a little more than halfway through, and I turned the page, and it was totally blank. And at that point, I knew I was a goner. So you had that moment that most people only hear about with what experience. When did you realize, as you say in this chapter, God is so real to me that there was actually a life to continue to live? Well, you know, as I was flipping through that picture book, uh, and as I mentioned, the the page was totally blank. Uh, And and the doctor told me, ironically enough, that at that point of my hospital stage, I was, you know, right on the verge of life and death. Uh, You know, real critical. They didn't know if they'd save me. They didn't know if I'd pull through. And this is when I had that premonition. Uh, but as I turned the page and I heard God's voice tell me, James, have faith. Turn the other page. It took, took, a lot, took a tremendous amount of strength for me to finally turn the page because I was afraid that if it was, if it was blank as well, that would be it. I, I'd be passed on to, to the next world. And... Um, I finally summoned the strength to turn the page. And that page was blank too for a few moments. But then slowly but surely, some images started appearing on the page. And they became more and more vibrant, more and more filled in, more and more colorful. And I knew then that God was going to pull me through this. Mm. He kept me here for a reason. So mm. that, that is a, such a tremendous testimony of not giving up and having faith. Mm-hmm. And when you have those moments of faith, how then do you speak to those who have also been through those situations? I want to play one more clip at the end of that speech when you talk about not today, but actually tomorrow, that what you live today is temporary, but what we have tomorrow is forever. A huge mm-hmm. world out there of tens of millions of people a day in our country going through the exact same thing of despair and, and lack of hope. This is the difference I, I hope to make in their lives by sharing my story and letting them see that if they just hang in there a little bit longer, there is a tomorrow and they'll be glad to see those glorious tomorrows. How do you give hope to somebody today that's listening right now that there is despair now, but there's the hope for tomorrow? You have to just be as as subtle and straightforward as you possibly can 
uh, because I'm not living their life. They're living their life. Uh, they are they are where I was. And I remind them that I was right there where they are uh, with a sense of hopelessness and a sense of there is no tomorrow. But by hanging in there and by making my way through with the help of my professionals and my small group of intimate friends, uh, I was able to see a tomorrow. Uh, even now, this is three, four years later, uh, not a day goes by that I don't cherish each and every single day. And I'm here to see it. There's been hundreds of episodes throughout the last four years that I experienced. And I say, wow, if I had taken my life, I would not have been able to experience this. Mm -hmm. I would not have been able to see this for myself. Mm-hmm. And so this is what I'm trying to, you know, encourage everybody else who's going through those difficult times. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is temporary. Uh, it's just a temporary part of your journey on life. Uh, but you make it through there and the next days will be so much brighter and so much better. Hang in there with all you have. And it's it's definitely worth it. And so one of those people that really influenced you was another Washington State, not basketball player, but football player that mm. went a different way and did take his own life. And that was Tyler Hilsinki, the quarterback, just a couple of years ago. And when he took his own life, that almost became a another godly moment to you saying, no, we have to continue this idea for hope. Tell us about Tyler and how that impacted your journey today. <clears throat> Well, Tyler took his life in January 2018, uh, right in the midst of the darkest part of my journey of, of darkness. Um, I had gone to see my, my, my family doctor, and, uh, and I read the news that Tyler took his life. And then I didn't know Tyler personally, but I, knew, I know the campus of Washington State University very, very well. Even 40 years later, it hasn't changed much as a college campus. Uh, all of a sudden, the newspaper reports were trying to tell Tyler's story. They were talking about how much he had to live for, how, much, how great a kid he was. They were talking about different parts of the Washington State University campus that I had frequented myself as a student and many years throughout uh, the years after I graduated. And I, it kind of shook me to a point where wow, everyone is out there trying to tell Tyler's story and he's not here to tell his own story. Mm-hmm. And it made me just doggedly determined to say, I'm going to make it through this so I can tell my story. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people out there think they know me well and think they know me well enough to tell my story, but they don't know me as well as I know me. Yes. And now this is what I'm doing now is telling my story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I can put it in books and I can do all these other things that I do, interviews and everything else. But nothing is real and is true is coming directly out of out of my mouth, the words that I'm saying uh, and telling my story. And that's what I want to encourage everybody who might be going through some mental health challenges out there to be able to hang in there and tell your own story, because there will come a point where those clouds of despair will lift up and the the brightness and the sunshine will come back into your life. And you want to be here to see that. And you need to be here to see that. I love how in this book, Celebrating Your Gift of Life by James Donaldson, if you haven't gotten your copy, definitely uh, go online and get that or Standing Above the Crowd. But in your chapter of God is So Real to Me, 
you end each chapter with a reflection, really homework for the reader to do on their faith life, on their mental health life. And you say that, first of all, you ask, what evidence have you experienced of a higher power? But then you end this chapter with a prayer that I just want to read part of it. And a Mm -hmm. prayer, often people say, you know, well, why didn't God answer my prayer? And it's not necessarily God answering our prayer, but it's God listening to the voices so that we in self can sometimes answer our own prayers. And you write, I need help, dear God. I am without hope. You are my last hope. Please help me to feel hope again. And then you be can, um, conclude by saying, help me to become excited about that amazing day in my future when you will reveal the situation has all been part of your plan for me to become stronger and to help serve others. You've served a lot of people in your life. You went into the political realm. You went into the business realm. How then do you not have the shame and embarrassment to say, you know what, I too need help. And I need, and you write about this and I need you there for me, even at two in the morning. Well, this is a lot of my work I do now, especially with men, uh, trying to get us men to realize that it's, it's okay to ask for help. So many of us growing up, you know, little boys don't cry or, you know, just kind of dust your knee off. It'd be fine. Don't, you know, this is how we raise our little boys and they take that into manhood and they still don't allow themselves to cry. They still don't allow themselves to reach out for help. And I want to show people as a large, uh, you know, larger than life uh, individual myself at seven feet two, uh, African-American man that I cry and I reached out for help. And I still get emotional telling my story, but that's okay. I want people to see that I go through this still and I can do it. They can do it as well. Uh, I hear from men all over the country who call me uh, on one of my phone lines I have set up just for that purpose. And they want to talk to me about what I went through. Uh, They realize that they don't want to talk to their doctor. They don't want to talk to their spouse. They want to talk to me because here I am, a an athlete, and they, they remember watching me play and watching me be virtually indestructible as an athlete, uh, big, strong guy out there. And here I am sharing my emotions, sharing my fears about what I went through and how close I was to ending my own life. And many of them are at the same point in their lives. And so I work with them and back them off of that verge of suicide and try to get them the help that they need. Uh, So this is the work that I'm doing now. And uh, there's still work to do in trying to destigmatize what mental illness is all about. But it's going to hit all of us, or most of us, at some point in life. Uh, Two out of five people, 40% of us will experience some kind of mental challenge in our life. Mm -hmm. After this pandemic, it's probably up to three out of five now. And that that can be a challenge such as losing a loved one. Uh, you know, we all expect to lose our parents, but God forbid, we never expect to lose our child. Mm-hmm. But those things happen, and we have to be better prepared for those kind of things. It's actually interesting because the mental health space and the faith space used to be completely separate. And over these last few years, thank God, they are actually coming a little more together. Right here at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, just last year, we opened up the Sinai Temple Mental Health Center that you can have a deep faith, but also have doubt in your own life, in the challenges that you have. And you don't have to take that out of our 
sacred walls, but you can in fact bring that into your sacred walls and get help right here. And we're proud mm-hmm. to partner and maybe uh, hopefully during this year, you'll uh, be a visitor to our mental health center to share your story so that you can allow others to uh, share their own stories of the words out of their mouth as well. And so we're really, uh, we're, we're proud of that work. I'm visiting a behavioral health hospital today uh, and they want me to be one of their spokespersons for mental health, uh, which I'm more than happy to be and more than happy to do. So that's where I'm on my way to after this interview. And uh, I just look forward, you know, I say in my book, I've dedicated the next chapter of my life and I hope it's two or three more decades of being that voice and that advocate for mental health awareness and suicide prevention. And so this book, Standing Above the Crowd, was written before these challenges. This book, Celebrating Your Gift of Life, was written during those challenges. And now I'm talking to you, I don't want to say after those challenges, but we all continue to have challenges. If you had those challenges before you wrote this book, Standing Above the Crowd, would this book be any different? I don't know if that book would have came about uh, standing above the crowd. Standing above the crowd was kind of a perfect intersection of 20 years as a professional athlete, uh, 20 years as a small business owner, 30 years as a community-involved person. Uh, and all these things uh, involve some success strategies of how to stay on track for 20 or 30 years of anything. Mm-hmm. And it all came together at that point in my life. And I wanted to write about what those strategies were. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've, I follow a lot of great speakers, motivational speakers. Stephen Covey was one of my favorites, uh, you know, began with the end in mind and, and sharpen the saw and all these kind of things. Um, and so I, I really want to implement those kind of success strategies into standing above the crowd, because that's what I'm trying to get people to do. Life is full of all kinds of adversities and the little skirmishes that go about our you know, about our daily life every single day that so many times we get involved with. And we have to learn to stand above all of that. Mm-hmm. And it's different from standing out from the crowd. You know, yes. uh, you know remember back in the uh, the Monday Night Football where the, the guy with the rainbow-colored Afro wig would put his wig on and he'd be the, the center of attention for a moment because uh-huh. he stood out from the crowd. But I want people to stand above the crowd with integrity and with with strength and with value to themselves and everybody else out there, because that's how we make this life so much more worth living. Maybe it's celebrating your gift of life by standing above the crowd, right? It's a little combination of both, which I think uh, you've done really uh, perfectly. I just want to ask a final question because you said that, uh, right, you really stayed away from a lot of different, you know, challenges, substance abuse and all that thing. You were really the healthiest person around in the NBA, nutrition, and you were sort of like the doctor of the team almost. But one of the things that you were addicted to was actually Sunday school and you became very quickly a teacher. What lessons all the way back then in the church, um, in that Sunday school, favorite biblical story or something like that, that you really take to heart today that you enjoy teaching the next generation of kids to have a strong faith? Yeah, those those Sunday school teaching days go way back to uh, junior high school when I was you know, 14, 15 years old or so. And I'm teaching the younger kids, this five, six, seven-year-olds, about some of the lessons that Jesus taught us. And basically, you know, how he was able to bring people together and, and love each and every one of them, no matter how different they might have seemed and how different they might have looked. Uh, how, what education level they had, 
Uh, Jesus was all about love for each and every one of us. And his teachings were all about teaching us to love our neighbor as we would have our neighbor love us. And those kind of, you know, Sunday school teaching lessons, especially for kids, are pretty simple, simplistic. Uh, and we kept it simple. But that's really was the essence of it, was helping our children realize. And this is not what they're getting nowadays, unfortunately, in, in the schools and especially public schools with all the, the, the critical race theories and everything else. It's teaching division and hatred and spite. That's totally against the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, I made each and every one of you uh, in my image, and you are all a reflection of me. And he wants us all to go out there and spread the word and love each other as best we can. And so that's what I really remember teaching some of the younger kids when I was coming through being a Sunday school teacher for the time that I was. And it's still something I still teach people every single day, uh, just by being a, a good example of what a Christian is supposed to be. Uh, and I, I take, you know, I take it seriously. As both of us are part of the Abrahamic faith, my model really is Abraham. And in fact, in the book Genesis, it says in Hebrew, lech lecha, it means go on a journey, leave your house, leave your parents' house, leave your country and go to a land that I will show you. But we don't know where that journey is going to end up. And it's a very powerful moment that your journey is continuing, that our journey is continuing together. And I know you begin your book by Psalm 23, though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death. But I want to yeah. conclude this interview with one of my favorite psalms, and that's in Hebrew, Zehayom Asadonai. This is the day that God made. Nagila Benismechavo. Let us rejoice in that moment. James, that's the lesson that I've learned from you, from your book, and I really look forward to you being a mentor in our community and, God willing, in person as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, I love that psalm as well. Uh, you know, my faith is stronger than ever. I look at my life now. And I think it is so much more rewarding now than all the material trappings I had as a professional mm -hmm. athlete or as a business owner. I mean, I had I had the house, I had the car, I had money in the bank, I had everything set up that I had worked so long and hard for. All that's gone now. And now the life I live now, because I'm I'm able to really help people uh, through this journey of life and especially when they come across mental challenges and things that they need to get through and they can get through. This is the rewarding work that I do now. And uh, I just pray God that, you know, I can go at it for another two or three decades. He's blessed me with 65 years now. And uh, I just say, thank you. Uh, I've been blessed. Thank you. Well, God bless you, James, and our prayer for healing, physical and spiritual uh, well-being to all of us uh, in the in the years ahead. James Donaldson, 14-year NBA veteran, NBA All-Star, 20-year career, Washington State, author of two books, Standing Above the Crowd, Celebrating Your Gift of Life. James, an honor to have you on Rabbi on the Sidelines, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Have a blessed Thank day. Thank you, Rabbi. Have a wonderful day. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye.